Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we will be discussing contracts and negotiating over them. I'm here today with Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And I am Ruben Lerner. And yeah, so when you are going to have a new client, that's great news. Congratulations. You've moved down the pike a little bit. But likely they are going to want to negotiate with you over all sorts of terms and quite possibly even have a contract. So let, let's start off with the first question, uh, which is, uh, Eric, when do these negotiations actually begin? I mean, I suppose you could say philosophically, you start negotiating with somebody the moment you're talking to them. But pragmatically, I think in terms of the sales and marketing pipeline, usually it's you've more or less conceptually made a sale. So you've agreed roughly to terms and you're discussing the last few contingencies over like closing this customer. So I would put this at kind of the bottom of your sales funnel or the end of your sales sequence. So you have your marketing, your qualifying business, then you have a sales or a discovery call and or sales call, maybe one or two of those calls as a freelancer. Usually it's sometime after you've talked, you know, over Zoom or in person or whatever for a, a freelance engagement typically. So maybe the easiest way to recognize it is like, all right, we're prepared to move forward, but, and then they start with uh, stuff. So it's clearing up the last few hurdles over the sales process. At least that's generally been my experience. Uh, do you have the same take? Yeah, 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 pretty much. I mean, look, you don't want to say anything too early on that's going to give away the store, like, you know, because they are going to see anything that you say as part of this whole long process of negotiation discussion. So on your first phone call with them, you say, oh, you know what, if you buy 10 hours from me, I'll give you another 10 free on top of that, which of course is like a terrible idea no matter what. But they are going to remember that. And six months down the line, when you're talking to them, they're going to say, oh, wait, don't you remember you told us such and such about giving us free hours? So realize that they are going to remember many of the things, most of the things that you say. But right, it's really after you've come to this agreement, okay, let's work together. This is good. Now it comes down to the nitty gritty. And it's not just, it might seem at first like it's just going to be on price. But there are all these different things that you have to think about that they are going to want that are above and beyond the price that sometimes can even be more consequential. Before we get into some of those things, like, I don't know, uh, every company is different. But there are definitely differences, especially between, I found, I'm sure you also like, between big companies and small companies. There's this great Dilbert cartoon from years ago where they say, like, what's the difference between big companies and small companies? And at a big company, they say, oh, we've had workers, like they say, like big soup company. And they say, we have a real problem of employees getting caught in the machinery. We should really form a committee to report back to us in six months. And, and at the small company, they say, Charlie fell in the soup vat. Quick, change the label to extra chunky and double the price. So small companies are always going to be more nimble. And that isn't true in negotiation also, where it's going to be fewer people you speak with and they're going to be more flexible. But like beyond that, where do you see the differences? So I'm thinking historically of the companies that have been most or least likely to negotiate with like venture-backed startups being some of the least likely. So at like small companies, I think in general... A lot of the people you'll talk to tend to have more decision-making, more autonomy, and to be like busier. Um, small and venture-backed companies are interesting because they tend to have a lot of money. Their investors have just dumped a bunch of money on them, so they're not like trying to squeeze every penny versus 
even a company that started by a bootstrapper might try to negotiate more of a price in other terms because that nobody's just dumped lots of money on them. So I kind of draw a line between the funding structure of a company, like what sort of funds do they have to play with, and then size. The reason, in my experience, that a lot of enterprises, like that there's this kind of linear-ish correlation between company size and negotiation is that like the bigger a company gets, the more risk averse it gets, the more battle scars it gets from having things gone wrong. So what they start to do is introduce controls that don't exist at small companies like the CTO as the company gets larger or the IT department or whatever can't just buy stuff. They have to go to the legal department and get clearance. So the bigger a company gets, the more like hurdles there are for them to do business with a vendor or a freelancer. So I think like maybe there's a few axes of that I think of. One is certainly the small to larger spectrum. One is like how regulated the company is, either because it's large or maybe because they're playing in, in the government space or they're in some regulated industry like banking or they're dealing with personal health information. So those companies might get a little bit more negotiation heavy on engagements. And then there's, you know, I'll call it like the funding or budget situation. And that might even vary within a company, but usually when budgets and money are tighter, that's going to prompt more negotiation. And I think it even is down to some individuals too. Like some people really like to negotiate that you might be in touch with and others have no use of it. So even at the same company, it might vary by that just personality of the person running the project. I'm trying to think if there's any other variable I can think of there. Um, I was thinking, um, like, I know it's going to sound funny, but like how desperate they are for your solution. That's going to have a big influence on it. I remember once what was a big company called me and uh, they said, we really need a Git course. I said, okay, that's fine. It's two days for up to 16 people. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. we've got 50 people who need this course and they need it by the end of the month. And we only have one day to spare. So indeed, like I said, fine, like they were desperate. I said, you're gonna have to pay a lot. I think it was definitely like the most I've ever charged any company for one day because they just piled everyone <laughs> into the cafeteria. It was, by the way, completely ineffective, as I had predicted. And all those people ended up taking the course the second time the following year in smaller groups. But fine. <laughs> but like they were desperate and they would do anything to solve their problem because it was a really acute, painful problem. So that will often tilt it in your favor. And even though this was a big company and melted away a lot of the other factors, which normally like I'm dealing with a company like literally today, I was talking to them again and they have to go through all the process and procedures and so forth. You know, what occurs to me, too, now that you mentioned that is... There's going to be a relationship between the company or the, at least the budget that you're dealing with. I'm trying to think of exactly how to put this, but like how much of a big deal that spend or that purchase is to the company. So like for a freelancer, I'm guessing most of you listening are going to be doing work, maybe starting in the four figures range on up to six figures if you're doing like large, long contracts. And that's usually fairly prone to negotiation depending on the size of the company. But like imagine, for instance... If you were selling like a book at the extreme end of the spectrum, they're not going to negotiate with you at all. That's a credit card swipe. And you could even create some kind of productized service offering if it were in the hundreds of dollars or the low thousands. You know, if you had like a $2,000 offering for a lot of companies where that's still a credit card swipe or discretionary budget spend, they're not probably going to bother to negotiate with you. So and this is tied in with company size and whatnot. But if engaging you is just like a no-brainer, it's very simple in some way, then you're going to be less likely to have things negotiated with you. And I think that's a really important point that in many companies, people have a budget for spending on things. So especially if it's an educational product, book, course, whatever, then they can, if you keep it priced within their limit, then they can just do it. They don't need to ask permission for anyone. The moment that it goes above that limit, which of course varies by company, 
then they need to bring other people in. Then they need to negotiate. They need to try to squeeze you, maybe bring you in as a vendor as opposed to just paying for the credit card. The moment you're a vendor at one of these companies, it's both positive because then you're in the system and then it's much easier to do additional work with you, but it's also getting over that and that, that can take some time. And by the way, even mm-hmm. after you're done with all the negotiations, often they'll say, okay, great, now we agree on things. Now you get to start the trail of paperwork and boy, oh boy, it can take quite a <laughs> while to just get through everything. And I constantly, whenever I send an email about any of those things, I say, I, I hope this fulfills all the needs we have. Let me know if I, I messed anything up here. And inevitably, I've messed something up. Inevitably, I've forgotten a document or didn't sign something I need to sign or something along those lines. Another thing that occurs to me about like likelihood of negotiation, and I'll be curious to see if you have this experience as well. Is it one person that's going to make a decision to buy from you or is it two or more? And in that latter scenario, it's way more likely that negotiation happens. And there's like an interesting, I think, psychological reason behind this is like, imagine that you're selling like application development, custom application development. Someone hires you to, um, you know, I don't know, do some kind of database or ORM migration, that person can just make the call. Like it's a director of engineering. They just hire you to do it, pay you. But if the person that goes out and finds you is like a software architect, and then it's going to be the director who's maybe the architect's boss that signs off on it. Now you're dealing with two people. There's this interesting psychological dynamic that happens where they're both evaluating you as a partner or a vendor, and probably neither one wants to seem like undiscerning. So they feed off of each other and want to look like they're kicking the tires more and ask the hard questions. I have generally found that when there's multiple people involved, even if it's not like controls issues at the company, that they feed off of each other and really want to look like they're putting you through the ringer. Have have you encountered that? Is that your experience? I'm trying to think like back when I was doing more development work, there were definitely a few times when like they brought me in to just have an initial meeting of let's, as you say, kick the tires. Let's you know, see what this guy knows and doesn't know. And I also got sometimes got a feeling they were just milking me for information that they could <laughs> like a, a like a free consulting uh, call. But most of the time it was just like one person who brought me in and they had already gotten approval for it. Not always, but mostly. I do remember one time. Oh, that's right. That's right. When the CTO brought me in and then he basically said, OK, this sounds great. Let's do this. And it was a small company, like now it's not so small, but like back then it was a small startup with venture funding. And then he passed me off to the combination of like general counsel, COO, and she was the one who was actually going to negotiate the terms with me mm-hmm. and do the bottom line. And in some ways that was like just because they were getting bigger. In some ways I think it was also like a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. And in fact, in fact, now that you remind me, right, that happens in Israel all the time, that the purchasing department is a euphemism for the people who will try to negotiate you on price. Like, and they will just sort of, so I'll agree to, with virtually every company I deal with in Israel. Everything will sound great. And then the purchasing department will call me up. And when they call, I know it's basically to say, you're too expensive. We need to bring down your price. And that's really frustrating. And I even had a company, I, I'm sure I've told this story before, I had a company where they said, you've got to go down on price. And I said, Actually, no, I won't negotiate on price, which is, by the way, unheard of in Israel. No one in Israeli society like refuses to negotiate on anything. We bought a refrigerator and we negotiated on the price, like everything. And so she said, listen, if, if you don't negotiate, if you don't go down, then my boss won't approve it. You must give me something. So I knocked off, what was it, $10 a day, $15 a day? And they were like, great. And that was that. <laughs> But she was so shocked that I was willing to just walk away from the work rather than negotiate that it was like violating cultural norms. And yet that was her job. Her job was to squeeze everyone. So that's actually, it's probably worth saying, because I can think of, 
you know, without painting too broad a brush, it does seem like culturally there are differences in likelihood of negotiation in different countries is something else that you might want to bear in mind. I haven't studied this, so I wouldn't want to weigh in other than anecdotally, but like I've encountered the same thing that certain, I think cultures or countries, it seems are more likely or more accustomed to negotiating engagements than others are. Yeah, yeah, like with U.S. companies, I've rarely had this sort of negotiation, whereas with Israel, like Israeli companies, it's constant. Okay, by, by the way, like if you're dealing with a really small company, like I've sometimes dealt with these like, you know, five-person, ten-person companies, that's like super easy because typically it's like the CEO or the CTO who's like sitting in a room with the CEO calling you up. I don't know if you found that, but I've definitely found like they know they need someone, they're going to bring you in, you're going to solve their problem, end of story. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. So what is there to negotiate? Like we've mentioned a few things, so we've danced around a bit. The big thing is, of course, going to be the price, like how much you're going to charge. And that, you know, we're going to talk more about pricing on the next episode. But like, generally speaking, what, what would you say are like the parameters for pricing? Like what are the factors to take into account or the variables you can quote on? I think it depends like how you're pricing or billing or whatever you're doing. Like if you set an hourly rate... I think one of the most common or maybe two of the most common things you'll hear if you're like, well, I I bill $100 an hour and somebody wants to negotiate with you, they'll say probably like either, oh, we're talking to this other firm or whatever that'll do it for 90. Will you match that? Or they'll say some kind of budget. Oh, the most we can allow for this work is like 90 an hour. Like those are two common things. I don't think you hear companies a lot would just say, I want to pay you $5 less an hour. I mean, maybe, but... I don't really recall stuff like that too much. It's usually anchored to either other people or a budget. Versus if you're giving like flat priced or value-based price, it gets harder to do that because they don't they don't see into the internal mechanics of your pricing, if you will. So if you say, I think on this project I can save you $5 million, so I imagine it's worth 50000 if I charge you that. They don't exactly know how you're coming up with that, so that flat rate gets a little harder for them to come back and say, I think it should be forty-eight. Like. <laughs> They might still negotiate or ask if you do it for less or something, but I think it's less common, at least my experience. I've had limited positive experience with value-based pricing, at least in Israel, because everyone's next question is, oh, so how much is that per hour? Or how many hours <laughs> are you like, estimating this to be? And like, that just blows up the whole thing. But right, so, so price is definitely going to be something, and you want to know what their budget is. Again, we'll talk about this more next time, but like... That's clearly going to play a role in the negotiations. And you might think, by the way, it's the most, it's the biggest thing. But for, if it's a big enough company, the money is not the issue. It's mm-hmm. more like ROI. Like they're, they are going to be spending money on something and they want to see the benefit. And are, what benefit are they going to get? How do they know they're going to get that benefit? So what else can we like potentially negotiate on, talk about and so forth? And, and how is it even structured, right? So I think if you imagine that, you know, somebody wants to help enlist you to help build a website or something, or like maybe it's a bigger company that's going to do freelance application development, hire you to do that. And you're fitting in as like a staff augmentation in a team, something of that nature. They're going to look at is what they're paying you within the band of what they would expect to pay people like that and start to potentially negotiate with you on price. If that starts to happen and you want to counter one of the, I think maybe like the second biggest thing I could imagine people negotiating on is some kind of scope. So I guess to pull back a little from, say, the staff augmentation example, the easiest way maybe to reason about that is if they're saying like, well, you know, I want a website built and it's going to be, they have a figure in mind and you tell them you'll build a website for 10,000 and they say, well, I was hoping to spend 5,000. You might say like, well, okay, 
I can do it for that if I forego doing any of the design work, like you'll bring in someone later to do the CSS or you handle that yourself, like whatever the case may be that you start cutting scope, that can be like a nice counterpoint, whether you're doing hourly or anything else to pricing, like generally speaking, the more scope, the more price. So if people are sensitive about price, you can say, okay, I'll bring my price down, but do less work. I think that's probably the second most common negotiating point. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely remember talking to people about how, oh, this is too expensive for you. Fine. So let's cut out some functionality and then it'll take me less time and then it'll be cheaper. Then they would have two reactions. One reaction would be, what? No, we need all this functionality. And if they insist on paying less and having the same functionality, well, that probably was not a good match and things often blew up then. Or, oh, like, fine, we'll put that aside for step one and then that'll be part of you know, step two, stage two. I don't know how common it is in different places, but there was definitely this thing I discovered just in working with American companies of the distinction between a master services agreement and a statement of work. And I had seen these mentioned online in various places. I had no idea what people were talking about until some of my U.S. clients started actually talking this way, where the master services agreement is, this is like how we are going to work together for whatever projects we do. It's like a generic thing. And then the statement of work is just, this is for this particular project. So to use your example, like building a website, let's say I'm going to build five websites. Let's say the website is five different stages. So there'll be one master service agreement, one MSA, and there'll be five different statements of work, each one of which is for a different part of the website. Did I describe that right? Because I still don't have a huge amount of experience with these. Oh, yes. In the... um... I don't know how common it is like with multinationals or like outside of the U.S., but I see this all the time in the U.S. and I've negotiated and been part of this. So the master services agreement, yeah, is like the broad rules of engagement. And it's almost like um, software design pattern or something. So the stuff that rarely changes goes into the master services agreement. Then you have this small like subsidiary thing that'll change in the statement of work. Like how much exactly are we going to do? What is the rate? Maybe like the most common variables to change. And I think that's so that legal doesn't have to get involved every single time you might want to re-up. It is the usual common thing. That makes so much sense. (laughs) I I didn't understand why they would bring it up this way, but that, that, and in terms of what you're negotiating or negotiating in those things, rather than like the terms, it's like the vehicles for negotiation. So in the master services agreement, there's often going to be a lot of legal stuff in there. Who owns the work product, the, which I guess is something you could negotiate. I'm building the software and licensing it to you, or I'm creating this logo and licensing it to you versus I'm creating it for you. But things like who carries what kind of insurance, I'm trying to think what else goes in there, like... A lot of what goes into the master services agreement will be like contingencies. If we go to court to sue each other, where's the jurisdiction? What happens? Who's liable for what? Like all this type of stuff that legal would care the most about will go in the MSA versus the more tactical things that we're probably talking about in like this line of discussion, scope, price, et cetera, tends to go in statements of work. The thing I'll say about the MSA is almost certainly it's going to be your clients that have that. And a lot of the stuff in the MSA probably won't be negotiable to them. It's usually medium to large companies that have that. And you might be able to negotiate some points in there and strike like some items in this agreement. But their legal is probably going to insist, you know, that certain things happen if there's a dispute or that you have certain liabilities, et cetera. Versus the statement of work, I think there will be a lot more of the like tactical negotiables in there. That's been my experience at any rate. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm reminded of one when I was last in the U.S. for a gig. I guess it was about two years ago. I was doing something in Silicon Valley. And so it was a big multinational I was working with. And they had, indeed, a master's agreement and statement of work. And the MSA 
it said that I must buy auto insurance. Like, absolutely. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be taking public transportation or walking to work or maybe taking a taxi, but I will definitely not be renting a car. Like, that's just not going to happen. I mean, I have a driver's license. We have a car. I'm not interested in driving. And we went back and forth on this for weeks where basically their legal department said, under no circumstances are we letting you get away with this. You must buy auto insurance. And I was like, why should I pay for something I'm just not going to use? At the end, it was kept in the MSA with an addendum that said the individual statement of work can exclude me from it if I promise never to drive while on that trip. So like they bent, but it was in like the tiniest amount of bending and it was not in the master services agreement. And it was like, really? For this, we're going to go to war? So yeah, when you say they're not going to negotiate and they're going to bring it, it's 100% true. And yeah. like everyone in Israel loves to talk about a standard contract. Oh, we can't change that as a standard contract. And when you hear that from your landlord, you're like, oh, please. When you hear that from these big companies, it's 100% true. Uh, the, yeah, the thing that occurs to me is so much, the bigger the company, especially, so much will be determined by them that for a freelancer, a lot of times, since you're not part of a significant operation, a lot of times where negotiation takes place is they state or demand or want things that you don't want to provide. And then you're figuring out what levers you could pull. So if they try to bring you down in price, if you want to give into that, maybe you say, well, okay, but I'm going to do less in terms of scope. And it's just striking me that there's like a good way to think about this is how would I counter in a way where I get something? So like, for instance, payment terms would be a good one. If I were to quote somebody like, I'll do this for $20,000 and they say, no way, we won't pay more than 15,000. You might come back and say, okay, fine. I'll agree to 15,000 if you pay me the whole thing up front. So like payment schedule and terms can definitely be a good one. When you get paid, what sort of increments you get paid in, you know, if you, you want to get a little more exotic about it, like what payment methods do you accept? Like maybe you don't want to get overseas wire transfers because you get a chunk taken out. So I don't know, they have to cut you a check that they send you physically. So you can work with stuff like that. And I like to bring that up because I think a lot of especially new freelancers, if they've come from salaried employment, just map like, oh, well, you bill and then you tabulate your hours and you bill in arrears and then it's probably net 30. Like it doesn't have to be that way. There's all kinds of arrangements you can come up with to move your cash flow, flow cycle forward. Yeah, I mean, it's super standard in Israel to do net plus 60. So I bill and that means like more or less, let's call it two and a half months later, then the money shows up and it almost always, in fact, always, it's been years since I got anything else, it always shows up as a, an internal bank transfer in Israel, which is super cheap and fast. And if it's international, then it typically comes, again, it's going to be net plus 60, but it'll just come as an international wire, which again is pretty cheap here. So that's the way it typically works. There are exceptions. I once spoke with one of Israel's defense contractors, like a partly government-owned defense contractor about doing some work. And they said, oh, you do know that we pay net plus 180, right? No, I did not know that. And just like to do the calculation for you, dear listener, that means after you do the work, you wait six months to get paid. No, that was less than exciting for me to hear. And there are people also who manage to get paid up front. And you can demand that. I've never actually asked for it, but there are people who do and there are people, there are companies apparently who give in on this if it's important enough for them and or they have the, the flexibility to do it. And just to echo something that you said, Eric, from before, like, I know one of my like Fortune 100 clients once told me, just as an aside, that every time you invoice us, it has to be signed off by seven different people. I'm like, oh my God, like this is a gargantuan company and with tons of bureaucracy. And I think I'm sending in my invoice, end of story, and then I get paid. But it's making its way through this maze of bureaucracy that needs to be approved. <laughs> 
which explains why they've now moved to online. It's called a rebuts, like a SAP thing for invoicing, which is, I guess, better than it used to be, sort of, kind of, but it's a horrible piece of software off of which SAP is making billions, I'm sure. But again, if I want to work with them, I got to use it. End of story. Uh, maybe in terms of talking about like what are the different things that you might negotiate, the, the last thing I'd offer is a bit of a catch-all, but like if you start to get some experience negotiating over like contracts and official terms, things like payment terms, scope, price, those are all pretty well established. You can make some headway getting concessions in things that aren't typically covered by standard corporate agreements or what have you where it might not make it into a contract, but you might say something like, I had a note about establishing boundaries. So you might say, okay, I'll work with you, but I only communicate over email or like you have to make all requests of me through my personal Slack that I've created or whatever. So you can come up with things that you tell the party you're working with, either in concession to something else they want or just in general. You know, this is how I work. This is how I want to do things. And you might make some inroads, especially in quality of life or just things that like make sense for you by getting a little bit creative about how you will and won't work because your client's legal department isn't going to care whether they email you or send you Slack messages. So these are things like their bureaucracy doesn't care about. They may or may not care. You care. So you can figure out the things they're not as typically worried about and like litigious over and negotiate some stuff there too. And I think boundaries are generally a good one. Like I work between these hours. I don't respond to things on the weekend, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And every client is a little different. Every client has their own weirdness and sometimes to your benefit and sometimes to your detriment. So I had one client, the way it works in Israel basically is you typically send out an invoice, like a regular old invoice, they pay you. And then you send out what's known as like a tax invoice slash receipt. And the tax invoice basically says, I now owe that sort of roughly the equivalent of sales tax because I've received the money. Okay, fine. Sounds good. The thing is, many companies in Israel for many years insisted that you send this tax invoice before in order to ask for the money, meaning you send it out 60 days then or six days then start ticking, but you have now claimed to the government, I've already received it. Bottom line, they were forcing you as a small freelancer to pay the tax before you actually receive the money. And so the Israeli government very nicely changed the law a number of years ago and said any company making under roughly one and a half million dollars a year can send out a regular invoice. And only when you get the money can you send out the tax invoice. So I literally in the last few weeks had a huge company, doesn't get bigger than them. Let's just say to me, oh, no, we don't work that way. And I said, but the law says and they were like, you want to get paid? You're going to send us the tax invoice and you're going to pay the tax up front. I was like, okay. I guess so. Like, who am I? And I'm not going to take them to court and their lawyers will crush mine. And so sometimes, yeah, the law can be on your side, but go argue with them. It's not going to happen. Their lawyers are very good and well paid. And uh, you get to decide whether you want to work with them or not. That does make me think on the subject of contracts in general, like as a centerpiece to negotiation. That's an interesting one. Like, I, I think of like negotiation as something that can happen. You know, like we do a lot of business with venture backed Silicon Valley companies, like seed round to B round, let's say. And we don't actually do a ton of contracts with those companies. Nevertheless, you're still kind of negotiating the terms of the engagement to some extent. But then if you have a contract in place, that sort of formalizes some of the negotiation or like sets the terms. So I guess like it's worth dealing with the subject of contracts here. And I think we've touched on this in previous episodes, like recommendations around it. But what is your experience like with holistically negotiating? If a client is like, hey, I have this contract I need you to sign. Have you ever had any luck just saying, no, I'm not going to do that? No, the best I've been able to do is they, I had one client 
where they came to me with their contract. And I then hired a lawyer because I knew they had a high-powered lawyer, like, they, like the, the best-known high-tech lawyer, legal firm in Israel. So like I hired someone, and we had round and round of negotiation over, we want this and we want that. I paid so much in legal fees. And in the end, like after six months, the guy pulled the plug on the contract saying, oh, I can't trust you. I don't like you. Know, you didn't do X and Y and Z. And it took me like two more years to get paid. The contract at the end of the day was more or less worthless. And so that's part of the problem also. So there he did come to me with a contract. There I was able to get him to negotiate and I wore him down to some degree, but it wasn't worth it. It just wasn't worth it. And so contracts, at the end of the day, they set out the expectations. But every time, I don't know what your experience is like, but every time I've had problems with a client, the contract has not solved the problem. The problem has been solved for us, just like talking it over because going to court is just a non-starter and you just want to get out of each other's hair. (laughs) Yeah, So I've never had, in thinking about my own question, I don't think I've ever had anyone want or have a stock contract and we say no, and that works. They'll insist on it for doing business with them. I've had luck over the years, like I did this a lot with Hit Subscribe, which is if I would take a contract, a lot of times a company would send us like a standard contractor agreement, which would include a lot of provisions that didn't apply to the nature of how we were doing business. And even some that I couldn't sign. So like a common one in the U.S., there's a common clause that says, if you're going to subcontract out any work, you need to get written permission from us. Oh, my God. And I would strike (laughs) that clause in the contract and send it back to them and say, I can't sign this. Our entire workforce is subcontractors like this. I would be in violation uh, right up front. And so over the time, I've had luck never amending contracts or like changing what they said, like corporate counsel won't let you get away with that. But at least in the US, they will let you get away with striking some things. And to be clear on what I mean by that, listener, where you basically open the contract in MS Word and put like the strike through through a piece of it, you essentially delete the text and say, all right, I'll sign it, but without this clause. And even corporate counsel will sometimes agree to that. They'll ask for clarifications, you know, why do you want to do this, et cetera. So I've had some luck there. But in terms of the material things they're insisting on, no way. If they're saying that you're doing a work for hire, if they're saying they want the jurisdiction to be in New York City, their corporate counsel won't budge on that with you as a free answer. Right. Like you, you won't get to redefine that. They'll just say no. I'm thinking of other things that I've struck a lot, like non-compete agreements is a common one. So I've gotten agreements, especially for hit subscribe, like we, you're not allowed to work with our competition. That's a non-starter. We don't sign agreements like that. So I had a client who once said to me, okay, part of the contract is a non-compete. And I was like, okay, that's fine. They said, yeah, you can't work with anyone who does e-commerce because we're in the e-commerce space. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's not happening. And so they said, but you might work with our competition. I said, okay, your competition is not everyone doing business on the internet. That's preposterous. <laughs> so like we managed to narrow it down to a sentence or two that described very narrowly what they do. And I was like, okay, that's fine with me. Given what you do, though, even that is asking a lot because it's kind of ancillary. Like, you know, you're training their staff. It's not like you're building their core intellectual property. My goodness. That gig was actually like partly training and partly like doing code coaching, like sitting with their people and looking at their IP. So that, that oh, actually... Okay. But like, come on, come on. Like, like <laughs> it'll just be... So, what, am I going to go start, like, start my own venture based on their code? Are you kidding me? Yeah, these sorts of non-competes. I mean, the training company I was with in uh, China for a few years, they wanted me to sign a non-compete saying that I would never work with any of their customers like for three years after. And by their customers, they meant any of the tens of thousands of companies on their email list. 
And I was like, okay, again, not happening. And so we managed to negotiate down to companies that I had worked with directly for six months. But there is some leeway there sometimes, but even they realize that they're often overreaching. And there's also Mm. the question of how enforceable these are. I mean, you don't want to be a jerk about it because your reputation is probably worth more than whatever you'd make through jumping ship. But there is some reasonable stuff here. Intel was formed when people left was a Fairchild and formed competition across the street, more or less. So it's an established tradition in the computer industry, at least. What I'll say on the uh, the subject of enforceability, as an employee, I remember I'd signed a couple of agreements where they did tuition reimbursement, but if you left the company, and this is me as an employee years and years ago, if you leave the company, they get to claw back that tuition. I did that twice. I took the tuition reimbursement. I left the company. Neither company ever made any attempt to do that. And the reason I mention that is because I think it's a lot the same with like non-compete enforceability, that there is a lot that goes into contracts that the lawyers writing it probably know full well they would never successfully prosecute these clauses, that the judge would throw it out, but they just throw it in there because why not? It's designed to scare you. I'm not saying this to suggest that you go sign contracts that are onerous and then just assume that you'll be okay. But you should understand as you're signing these things that a lot of clauses like that are in there to scare you. They're preventative rather than, I do know for a fact, at least in the U.S., that a lot of non-competes that are drawn up, both for employees and contractors, are wholly unenforceable. Like They would be tossed out immediately if they ever tried. I seem to remember Corey Quinn, who we both know online, and like he's pretty well known in the AWS space, that he has taken Amazon to task for actually enforcing these things, not with high-level VPs, <laughs> but like with low-level people, that they'll just scare the dickens out of people and then like go after them or tell them they're going to go after them. So there are some companies that do that, but it's notable because it's so unusual. Most companies yeah. are like, whatever, we know people get new jobs, come on, you know, crazy. Here's a fun one, food. And I know this sounds crazy, but like when I go on site to a client's office, like they often have a cafeteria where they order in food and then there's a question of who pays. And so I found this is like all over the map, all over the map. So usually, at least in Israel, I go somewhere and it's assumed that they'll give me lunch. Right. So I will put that into my proposal. You know, you pay me X and Y and Z. I will need on the day that I'm there a parking pass if I bring my car and Internet service and lunch. the cafeteria. But there are a handful of companies where they say, no, no, no. If we pay for your lunch, then it's like we're bribing our vendors. So we won't do that. And then I even had a company where the U.S. office said exactly that. We can't give you lunch because of bribing our vendors. But the Israeli branch said, what nonsense. We're, of course, we're giving you lunch. And I thought this was like an American thing versus Israeli thing until I showed up in Silicon Valley and they gave me lunch. So it's a very company thing. And you should just know in advance, like the problem is basically you show up somewhere in the middle of nowhere and there's no food and you either like then you're sucked. That's the problem. That bribing the vendors thing is I have worked and consulted in some Fortune 500s and had to go through, oh, what was it? It was like this whole sequence of, you know, CYA type training for anybody that was a contractor or whatever. And the idea of uh, bribery, like graft, you would have to take courses in these things in conflict of interest. I don't know what triggers that, but that's a huge company. It's like, I remember that being a thing where it's probably because, especially if they have like government funding in there, you have to run vendors through all these different paces and be fair about how you select them. And there's a lot of focus on that. And so anything that is 
extra to the client vendor relationship they're very sensitive about. I'm not defending this in any way. It's bananas as far as I'm concerned. But I do remember having to go through things like that so I can picture the kind of companies that would do it. I'm just looking now, like trying to find in my email where I got like, there's one company that I work with a lot where every six to eight months, I know, especially, I know it was just before Christmas last year or a month before that, that they sent out something saying, basically, these are the rules for vendors and what you can get us, like what gifts you're allowed to get for people in the office so that they will like not favor you too much. And I was thinking like, what? Do people get gifts for people? Like, what? <laughs> it didn't ever even occur to me to, for these sorts of people that I work with. I go, I show up, I teach my course, they pay me. Why am I buying them a gift? But it seems like this is a big enough deal that I guess they do it. That's also like oddly presumptuous. Like, all right, here's, you know, just imagine somebody going to you like out of nowhere and being like, here's a list of gifts you can get me. <laughs> right. It was, it was very strange. But I did. There was one company where like they had an employee in China. And so whenever I go to China, like I'd go out to dinner with him like two, three times. And he always offered to pay. I was like, okay, sure. That's very nice. I figured the company was paying him back. Maybe it was. But his boss emailed me and said, listen, you should know he's not sure how to say this. But like by company ethics rules, he can't be paying for your dinner. You have to be paying him because like vendor and company relations. I was like, oh, I wish he had told me I would have paid or we would have split it or whatever. Anyway, so the whole food thing gets very complicated, much more than I ever expected. What I used to do that I think would cover that, although I don't remember food ever coming up too much in my consulting travels, but travel did. Uh, hotel arrangements, rental cars, flights, all the whole nine yards. What used to happen that to me was always a pretty big facepalm was the company would say, okay, we're going to pay you however much to consult. And then there's also the travel involved. So you invoice us and then on the invoice or as a separate document, submit for expense reimbursement. So maybe I'm doing a $50,000 engagement and I send them an invoice for that. But then I also you know, have $2,000 worth of hotel stays and flights and stuff. What I started doing because negotiating and getting that reimbursement would be onerous. I, I, the most absurd thing I ever remember getting was delayed payment because I had taken a snapshot of like a hotel receipt and their department kicked it back because they couldn't see like the bottom right corner of the physical receipt. Not that any of the text was obscured. It was just the whole receipt wasn't in the oh my God. file. So I started just building that into my pricing. So I would say, here's a quote. You don't have to worry about travel or like every expense is baked into this quote. And I actually found companies were pretty amenable to that, even bureaucratic ones. And so in your case, Ruben, I might extend that same logic to say, look, here's my pricing. You don't have to worry about my food. It's all in there. That gives them room if they want to come back, if, especially if they want to negotiate on price or whatever to say like, well, no, we want to blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. I guess if I really want this business, we can get into it. But like, I got tired of the receipt submission process, but also oh, well, why aren't you taking this cheaper flight? And it's like, because it has three connecting legs. I'm not doing, you know, right. and like having discussions like that was uh, not my favorite. So I just started to say like, look, I'll cover the variable cost of traveling in the way that I prefer. And I'll just bake some reasonable assumption in for the cost of all the travel. And here's your quote. It's funny you say that. So the company that I traveled with most recently, uh, both to Silicon Valley and then to India, they asked me to do that. They were like, okay, you know what? Why don't you just like put it in, just bills for everything altogether. And I think it was to avoid some of these bureaucratic hurdles inside their company. Like they didn't say it explicitly, mm. but I guessed it was. Also, they asked me like, you know, originally, what are your travel expectations? And that's, that's the thing where you might have some flexibility, might. 
nowadays during the pandemic, God knows like what travel is going to be like afterwards. But I said to them, oh, yes, I always travel business class, which is a very nice thing to say. It even partly <laughs> was true. You know, I always travel business class when someone else is putting the bill, I think is a, a more honest way to say that. So they said, really, that would be too expensive. Would you be OK with you know premium plus? I was like, well, I guess I'd be OK with that. And it was like luxurious from my perspective. <laughs> so we, we did just fine. I don't know if this is the case other places, but in the U.S. for U.S. knowledge workers traveling abroad, I think there is kind of an expectation that companies will pay for business class. Like, I don't think companies tend to make their employees and oh, contractors very, very variable by company. I seem to remember, and I have no firsthand knowledge of this, but I seem to remember hearing that Microsoft was really proud of the fact that everyone flew coach, like for years and years. That might have changed. I might not be remembering it right. And I even remember people um, in Israel who I knew at one company saying that originally, like before they were bought by a multinational, they were flying business class. And then the multinational said, no, 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 everyone flies coach. That's the rule. Huh. Wow. I that seems like asking a lot, especially if I imagine somebody in your position, like I'm going to go, I'm going to f- make, take this really lengthy flight and then be in country for no longer than it takes to deliver the engagement, which is two days of training and then right back out. Like I'd kind of be pushing back on that saying like, I got to sleep on this red eye flight if I'm going to, you know, <laughs> anyway. That's why they didn't complain. I think when I said them, I fly business, they were like, oh, that makes sense. What about like, we're going to hope that everything works great with this engagement and that you're going to want another one. So what happens when you have that second engagement? How much is negotiated and how much stays the same? How much remains in place? I mean, I think this can vary, but in my experience, once you have negotiated all of the particulars up front, for better or for worse, you don't see a lot of variability in future engagements. And I say for better or for worse, meaning if the engagement went really well, you like the pay, you like the way you work together, that's great. As we were talking about in the sales episode, there's no easier sale than like future business. On the flip side, if they negotiated you down to $40 an hour from 80, you're not going to negotiate them up to $80 an hour. For you. You're, you're not going to like get them out of that rut. So my experience is with renegotiation, it's rare that you would get things to be all that much different from the first engagement. And if you do, you'd almost want to be documenting during the first engagement why things should be different. That can vary. But I mean, like, this is also the reason I think U.S. companies do the MSA SOW thing is let's establish all the big negotiation up front and make it as minimal as possible to re-engage in the future. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, they the whole advantage to you of having especially a big client is that they're going to come back for repeat business. And it's going to be smooth and easy and you won't have much to negotiate. And it's the same thing for them. They want to get the service and they don't want to have to spend all this time and going to legal and going to personnel and God knows what. So the moment that like you start saying, oh, but wait, the second engagement is going to be different in these ways, you'd better have some good reasons for it. But yeah, if they really like you, give it some time also. Don't change things on the second one. Wait for the third or the fourth and say, oh, by the way, I really enjoyed working with you. But I think we can improve it in the following way. And improving it should be more than, oh, and I can line my pocket better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. And I think, too, like if you're, you know, say, trying to raise a rate substantially or do any number of things, you also run the risk of kicking things back into holistic negotiation. So if somebody negotiates you within a budget or a certain kind of scope in the first place, and you go and push back in a subsequent engagement, you might hear this would require a different MSA or we would have to get reapproval from legal or from whoever to do this. 
So there is, you know, again, for better or for worse, I think a good bit of inertia to re-engaging the way that you engage the first time. Some of it's psychological too. I think one of the things that Jonathan Stark talks a lot about is if you have hourly rate clients and you want to flip over to value pricing, that becomes pretty hard because psychologically the client is used to you having an hourly rate, you operating in a certain way. So to come back and say, okay, well, now I do things differently. They're like, what do you mean? Like you're solving a problem I didn't perceive I think it's the same with people who ask me, like through my site, how would I go from doing labor to consulting? And I often say, like, you would have to find new clients. It's because people are used to dealing with you as labor, not as expertise. So I think that both in terms of the legal stuff, but just the nature of your relationship with that client, you kind of lock in-ish from the initial engagement. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the biggest thing I've done with my clients, I guess, from initial engagements is raising prices. I try to do Mm -hmm. that rarely and slowly because A, they're never happy about it. And (laughs) B, there's always the risk that they're going to say no, or we're going to give you less work as a result or all sorts of other things. So not rocking the boat is good. Sometimes it's necessary for all sorts of reasons, but do try to keep it as a minimum. I feel like we could do an entire future episode about how to raise rates on existing clients because that is a delicate one. Oh, yeah. I think that's a, that's a very good idea. Before we wrap up, any, any sort of ideas, tips, suggestions, maybe beyond what we've talked about so far for people engaging on this negotiation? I'll give a few that I had noted here. The first one, you know, just, I mean, on the subject of negotiating in general, setting aside like contracts or particulars, if I think of there's a moment where you're, you and the client know that you're going to work together and somewhere between that moment and the moment that you start working together, you're ironing out the details. One of the ones I would definitely suggest is setting clear boundaries on what you will and won't do, whether explicitly in a contract or otherwise. And this might even go back into the sales call if you get used to saying, this is how I work, where some of the stuff I alluded to before, if you're not a phone person, for instance, I would make it clear that you don't expect to give the customer your cell phone number and get you know calls and texts at all hours of the night. So when do you do business? How do you invoice? You know, how should people reach out to you? When can they expect you to respond to them? How long should it be that they, you know, like, will you get back to them within a day, et cetera? And that dovetails into a second point I would make, which is you should define as much of that as possible upfront about just how you work. So I know, Ruben, you do, I guess what I would think of the training is kind of a productized service. With Hit Subscribe, my business, we're selling content specifically scoped. It's a productized service. So there's a lot of particulars about businesses like that. This is how it goes. Like we do a discovery call, then this happens. We'll deliver according to the following schedule. Here are these questions you might have. We're answering them. So I've talked about this in the sales portion before. Like the more polished you are, the better, the more experienced. That also works really well for negotiation because if you're a blank slate and it's like, oh, well, how do we communicate? And you're like, wow, I don't know. I hadn't thought of that. The client's going to fill that in for you and say, I'll tell you how we communicate. You join (laughs) our Slack. You get onto our Outlook. But if you're on a sales call saying, okay, I get a hold of all my, con- you know, we work together in Notion and Basecamp or whatever, now they're kind of on their back foot about that. You've defined how you work. So that works well with setting boundaries, which is have all of this stuff defined on how working with you goes. And then the final one I'll offer, at least out of my personal experience, we talked pretty regularly throughout this about negotiating on price. But I would not like let people negotiate you down on price. I mean, if you have a mortgage to pay, I can't say that you should never do that. But it has been my experience that I have invariably regretted letting somebody talk me down on price because you think 
they're going to be almost grateful. Like if you say I wouldn't do an engagement for less than a thousand dollars, a client comes along and is like, oh man, but can't you just make an exception? I have a really tight budget. <laughs> Will you do it for 750? You think, oh, fine. You know, they'll recognize how charitable I am and they'll be really easygoing and maybe in the future we'll do more business. It will not go like that. They think they're overpaying for you. They think that you're too expensive in the first place. They've negotiated you down on price. So you think this is barely worth my time and they think this person ought to be giving me the moon because I'm overpaying. There are lots of companies out there and they will be willing to pay the prices you want. You just have to find them. So if somebody says that they can't afford you, move on. It's okay. Somebody will be able to afford you. I just, I've been burned way too many times. Oh, I, I, I had never thought about the way you just phrased it. And it is so true. Like, think about it. When you go to a store and you like find an incredible bargain, you're like, ha, they didn't notice that like the price on this hadn't been changed or like, you know, this was a last year's model, but I bought it for like, or whatever. Like you feel like you've gotten a great deal in the process. And that's what they're going to say. They're going to say, I got this great deal, but it's not a product. It's a person. And so they're like, oh, this is the price that you should always be giving. And you hit it on the nose there. They're not going to be grateful. This is now their new expectation. And they're going to assume that they can still beat you down because how can they see they you know, agreed to go down before? Yeah, yeah it's, it's bad for the relationship, as bad as it is for the, the pricing, 100%. And I, you know, if... I think that you can stick to that. And that's where I talked about trade-offs. Like, okay, you want to pay less? I'll just do half the work or what? That's a little glib, but that's where negotiating like things on scope or payment terms or whatever can come in. One thing I would add a rider on to suggest is if somebody's, you say your rate's $100 an hour and they're like, I'll give you 90 and you're like, okay, fine, but you have to pay up front. I would be careful at letting that seem like the product of negotiation and instead try to establish ahead of time, like I'll do volume discounts or I'll offer a prepayment discount. So when you say I'm $100 an hour and they say, oh, that's too expensive, you can say, well, I'll tell you what, if you're interested in paying up front, I do a 10% discount for that. And then they haven't negotiated you. The moment that you phrase it as a policy of yours, that's different. Then you're sounding like a business. You're not sounding like a pushover. And sometimes you have to ad-lib these policies, right? So I've, <laughs> I sometimes had clients ask, uh, is it okay if they record my courses? And I say, no, it's my policy not to allow for that. End of story. They don't ask again, as opposed to, right. And so I think the prepayment, and by the way, I've seen companies offer that too, where they say, we will pay you faster if we can knock 5% off the price. So it's a perfectly normal corporate policy and you're not looking quite as bad. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And, then, and by the way, that like a recording the course, when things come up over and over again as negotiations, you should take that as a freelancer into account and think about maybe that's an inflection or pricing point for an offering or a whole other offering. So like in this case, you could say like, well, I charge X. If you want to record it, it's 1.5 X or whatever. Like there's valuable intel if you get the same negotiation points over and over as to like what should affect your pricing. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I don't think I have too many real like things to add to what you said. Just recognize that at the end of the day, like this sort of negotiation is normal, is reasonable reasonable and you will get used to it. I used to get very nervous about these negotiations. Oh my God, I'm talking to a company and it's about money and I feel bad taking the money because, you know, money is kind of weird and evil. And like what I had, I, I, mean, I was just telling you before we started recording, this company contacted me and they said, you're too expensive. And I said, okay, I'm not taking it personally. That's okay. Like at the end of the day, they want something I can provide that. 
If we can find common ground, great. And if not, and the less personally you take this stuff, that the easier it becomes for everyone. I had one client who kept saying to me, it's not my money. It's my company's money, not my money. So like, which was perhaps being a little cavalier with his company's money, but he didn't see it as a personal thing at all. He didn't you know, take it that way at all. I really like that. If I think of not taking it personally, maybe an easy way, if you're listening to cement this in your head, especially if like you're a new freelancer, you go on Upwork or something and you're like, I'm a hundred dollars an hour. And somebody's like, I'll give you 80 an hour. It's easy to internalize that as some kind of assessment of worth or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that's a unique artifact of the employed world. But like, if you're thinking about what's actually happening, what you're talking about when you're freelancing is offering 10,000 to maybe like $300,000 worth of services of course there's going to be negotiations. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money that like is changing hands over this. Of course, some debate is going to happen over the finer points. If you think of it through that lens, that becomes equivalent to the most expensive consumer purchase that people ever make, like cars, houses. You don't just go into the dealership, look at the sticker, and then write them a check. Even a right. purchase like a car, especially a house, there's negotiation over everything. So that's all that's really happening here is there's a lot of money changing hands. So you got to nail down the finer points of it. Absolutely. All right. With that in mind, let's uh, move on to picks. What you got, Eric? Nothing came up offhand during the episode. I've been doing all these like thematic picks where I tossed a book out there. So I think I'm going to give a pick to a tool that I've been using lately called ClickUp. It is like so many others, I don't know, like a modern ERP or SAP type tool, but it seems uniquely well suited for digital businesses to do things like account management or what have you. I don't know how to quickly and easily describe it, but basically it's like, automations around like lists, uh, hierarchical lists of tasks, let's call it. So it becomes really good for SOPing out things, you know, like onboarding a client or doing follow-ups with a client. You could probably use it as a CRM. It's a very like flexible, automatable, low-code tool. Maybe it's a no-code tool. I don't know how you count the automations. But anyway, if you're thinking about things for your business, like creating some SOPs for how do you onboard clients or what do you do during contract negotiation or what does your funnel look like, that could be a good one to check out. The way I learned about it was to watch like a bunch of videos to do some pattern matching, like people on YouTube being like, oh, here's how I use ClickUp for my CRM. Seeing that like really helped cement it because it's pretty open-ended and flexible, but I've been using it and now rolling it out with our account management group, hit subscribe, and it's going pretty well. So it's worth a look. Very cool. So I'm going to suggest anything written by Patrick McKenzie. I'm going to put his uh, website, calzumius.com, for reasons he says are esoteric and historical. But uh, Patrick now works for Stripe, if I'm not mistaken. But he ran a bunch of businesses for a number of years online, and he made a fair amount of money doing it. And more important than any of that is that he writes very clearly about business software and how to think about business if you are a programmer. And it's it was one of the sets of writing that really changed my mindset or started to change my mindset from, oh, I love programming, but okay, I'll take money for it to, oh, I can approach this as a business and I can market myself and I can make a good living doing it by attacking business uh, business problems. And um, definitely, definitely worth reading. Um, it's, it's really fun stuff. And there we go. That's it for this episode of The Business Freelancing. Thanks, as always, to all of you who are listening out there. If you have suggestions or ideas, please contact us via our show page. We would be delighted to hear from you. And we will be back next week on The Business Freelancing.